0: I'm Amrit Swarley. I'm Mariana Vieira, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Undercurrents. You'll notice today that Ben is not here. For I think the first time this year. So I'm really excited that it's just me and Mariana. We've kicked Ben out. But Mariana, how are you doing? I hear you have some very exciting news. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Amrit.
0: I'm good. I have recently moved from the World Today magazine to the International Affairs Journal, where I'll be doing their book review section. Uh, which is very timely given the topic of the interviews for, for this episode, so I am very excited.
1: I think you're going to be really great. As you mentioned, it's a very timely move because today's episode is dedicated almost entirely to International Affairs' new special issue. I guess before we go into giving you guys an overview of the interviews, Mariana, do you want to say something about the new special issue of International Affairs?
0: Sure. So it's the January 2022 issue. It's the first of this year and the first of the centenary year for for the International Affairs Journal. It is a special edition in that it is open to the public. There are going to be two special editions this year, I believe. So this is one of them. It is extra special for me because the topic or the the themes of the articles are centered around race and imperialism in international relations, both from a theoretical and a practical point of view. And also as part of the centenary uh, celebrations this year, the the journal is having two other initiatives, one on looking at the archives and the another one, which are the centenary conversations, which you can also find a series of interviews that come out with each issue, I believe, which we will also link in the show notes alongside with the articles that we'll be talking about. Amrit, do you want to share with us your interview?
1: Thank you, Mariana. So I spoke to the guest editors for this new special issue, Jasmine Ghani, who is a Senior Lecturer in the School of International Relations at the University of St Andrews and Co-Director of the Centre for Syrian Studies, and Jenna Marshall, who is Senior Researcher at the Chair of Development Policy and Post-Colonial Studies at Kassel University in Germany. We discussed their introductory article a little bit, and spoke more broadly about race and imperialism and colonial policy making and the legacy and the impact that that's had on international relations. So it was quite a broad-ranging conversation, but also super interesting because that's some of the thinking that we've been doing internally at Chatham House over the past two years as well. So it was great to kind of see how those two things linked up and also to discuss a bit more about the colonial tensions and... Problems in this idea of knowledge production and how that's shared between different sectors. So that's the first interview you'll listen to. And then we go over to Mariana. I had the pleasure of speaking with one of the authors
0: uh, in the issue. Uh, her name is Katrin Antweiler. She was, until last week, a PhD a candidate at the Justice Liebig University in Germany. As of last week, uh, she has defended her thesis on representations of the Holocaust in human rights museums, and she has now uh, completed her degree. Her research looks at this intersection between human rights and memory, and her article in the latest issue of International Affairs is called The Coloniality of Holocaust Memorization in Post-Apartheid South Africa. In this article, it's it's a bit more of a case study into the, the sorts of themes that she focuses on. And we had a really good chat about not just the article, but where the idea of the article came from. So a little bit of context. We talked about some of the key concepts, but also the key arguments that she puts forward in order to make her thesis a bit more accessible for our listeners. And then we delved into the implications of prescribing these universal lessons from history and how these translate from a global human rights discourse to more local dynamics.
1: Let's take a listen. I'm joined now by Jasmine Ghani and Jenna Marshall, who have guest edited the most recent issue of International Affairs, which focuses on the theme of race and imperialism in international relations. This new issue is particularly special because it's the first published in the journal centenary year. Firstly, Jenna and Jasmine, a huge congratulations to you both on this new issue. I've only read a couple of pieces in it, but it's such a rich and really important collection of articles and research. Of course, as guest editors, you've both contributed to this new issue. We'll delve into your articles a little later, but I wanted to ask first, why did you want to use this special issue to address this? And why has international relations as a field historically steered clear of grappling with these big concerns um, and issues of imperialism, colonialism and race? I think for for
2: Jasmine and I, like many of our colleagues, the murder of George Floyd and subsequent Black Lives Matter protests really did strike a chord with us. And we thought it was an opportunity for us to produce a body of work that took race and racism seriously. And doing that meant drawing on a history of scholarship that has also taken these themes seriously. Typically, though, I wouldn't necessarily say that this work has been neglected or that there are those who have steered clear from it. Actually, in the opposite, I would say that there's been a lot of critical scholars around the world who have built an intellectual tradition in parallel to mainstream IR theorizing, where many of these themes have been interrogated of note, has been how histories of imperial domination have been foundational to the construction of the modern global system and its political and economic institutions. Here I can think of the work of Robert Vitalis, Heloise Weber, Brian Schmidt, Duncan Bell, Olivia Rutaziba, Robbie Shilliam, Mira Sabernathram, Tarak Bakari, Randolph Prasad. I mean, just to name a few. So rather than staring clear of it, I would believe we need to ask why mainstream literature has been hesitant to engage with this scholarship and on these themes.
3: I just like to add to that. But first of all, thank you, Yamrit, for your um, kind words and for having us on the podcast. I mean, I think Jenna's point there really speaks to the need to provincialise the experience and practice of Western IR scholarship, not only in terms of the received knowledge of IR, but also in terms of the praxis and teaching of it. So clearly there are important segments of IR in other parts of the world, but also in um, Western institutions that have taken race and imperialism seriously. But of course there is that neglect of race and imperialism in a lot of mainstream writing, theorising, certainly in Western knowledge production. And we can see it as a product of perhaps three processes, one which um, Gurminder Bambara has written about, and um, that's methodological whiteness, or which Mira Sabaratnam has identified as sort of an immanence of whiteness. And what this relates to is a production of knowledge that's fundamentally shaped by one's standpoint, right? So what is visible to the individual? What to them is important? What is worth knowing about and writing about from their perspective, then gets reflected in their intellectual work, even subconsciously. And so similarly, if the producers of knowledge are not adversely affected by racism or imperialism, then it just doesn't seem important enough to their research, it's not important enough to teach or write about. But the second way in which that neglect occurs is is less incidental, right? Where in fact the silencing of certain topics helps to retain the status quo, and helps to retain existing dynamics of power within the discipline, which is in certain echelons, it's within their vested interests. So if we were to give more attention to matters of race and imperialism, then who we listen to, what sources we take into consideration, the sites of knowledge production, all of that necessarily shifts. I'd say finally, as a few of the articles in the special issue have argued, Aya has been complicit in constructing so-called watersheds, in which racism and imperialism are relegated to history, right? So whether that's the creation of the United Nations, for example, or if it's the end of the Cold War, that might then produce the idea that if something occurred in the past, for example, imperialism, why would we then need to still talk about it? And what that does is, rather than have that necessary reckoning with the past, especially the West's past, It allows for a redemption of Western identity in academia. And that also justifies positions of hegemony or leadership, whether that's in actual politics or in knowledge production.
1: Brilliant. Thank you both so much for that. And yeah, you're right. I think it's so important that we recognise that this neglect that you say, as you've mentioned, is, is both conscious and unconscious. So there's a lot of work to be done in a lot of different ways to try and rectify that. Early on in your introductory article on the impact of colonialism on policy and knowledge production, so just drawing on what you guys were talking about here. So in that article, you both asked the question, how do the exclusion, amnesia and denials that constitute the discipline's history get reproduced at the policy level? Now, the reason I really like this question is because it very implicitly acknowledges that power and representation are really at the core of this issue that you're grappling with. And additionally, it speaks to the fact that these relationships between knowledge producers and policymakers are quite linear and almost subconsciously guided by a very well ingrained status quo on how things should be. So I suppose my question to you, and there's probably a few questions in this, so apologies, but what are these racial foundations that underpin IR and how do they appear, how have they been perpetuated and how does this then get translated to the policy sphere? How does this knowledge production and sharing take place?
2: I think it's really important to first define our concepts here, particularly racism and typically We, you know, in public discourse, see racism as one holding prejudice. But I would like to draw on the work of Henderson, as I mentioned earlier. And he defines racism as the belief in practice and policy of domination based on the specious concept of race. And what's important to understand is that race is a social construct produces different meanings in different contexts and different times in space. So racism must be viewed as ideologies, practices, and policies that are reflective of and supported by institutional power. And in this case, it's typically state power. So I, I just think having that understanding of, of racism helps us to then understand what we mean by the racial foundations in IR theorizing. And with that definition in mind, I, for instance, in my work, look directly at development policy and development aid. And we see the deployment of development aid, particularly after 1949, when aid becomes institutionalized. And what what often goes unremarked in the mainstream, as well as critical literature, is the way that aid itself encodes racial tropes of non-Europeans, of their populations, but also institutions. And well-known is the critical work, right, on aid within a Cold War geopolitics between Western liberal democracy versus Soviet communism. But often dismissed are the racial presuppositions that inform development policy. And the way in which they presuppose is this idea that the non-European, and in my work, I, I look at people of African descent, how they are incapable of betterment outside of Western ideologies and institutions. And the result of this is this idea that somehow, as non-Westerners, there's a a lack of agency and legitimacy. And we we see this in an interview with the Prime Minister of Barbados, uh, the world's youngest republic. And she responds to the suggestion that the island nation state was simply a pawn within the current geopolitics between US hegemony and China. And what's quite interesting is that she responds to say, well, there's been expansion of Chinese interest within North Atlantic economies, but that type of rhetoric that's given to small island states of them being pawns is not replicated. So there is this understanding our notion of small states within the global south as simply passive and in her words without equal capacity to determine their destiny and what is quite instructive is that her response speaks to the level i believe of resentment that many leaders and citizens in the global south feel when their agency and their demands for self-determination are often trivialized minimized, misrepresented, or in some occasions even ignored.
3: Yeah, to add to that, I'd say that there are direct ways, right, that the racial foundations of academic knowledge production that we discussed in our previous answers find their way through to policy and often that direct way is through personnel. And there's a long history of IR academics or just academics or intellectuals in general who have moved out of the university and into policymaking, either as consultants uh, or by taking up official government positions. So there are obvious examples of the latter in the United States, from Woodrow Wilson to Henry Kissinger to Condoleezza Rice. And going further back to the 19th century, the English political philosopher J.S. Mill uh, worked for the British colonial administration in India. So where these intellectuals have had training in imperialist thought or even played a key role in constructing that imperialist thought, they've then carried those ideas with them into policy or at the very least have reproduced biases or erasures in their policy approaches. But often it's not as straightforward as that. Uh, For example, in my article in The Special Issue, I explore the way in which Policymakers are, in fact, keen to access the expertise of intellectuals. And often that communication between policymakers and academics is mediated via think tanks. So when it comes to the Middle East, for example, academics, and historically they have done this, may consciously or even unconsciously reproduce what Edward Said described as latent Orientalism. Now, that might be through sheer discourse or reproduction of certain racial tropes, for example a propensity for violence or sectarianism or authoritarianism. There's numerous articles, even contemporary articles, we can find in books that, that reproduce these ideas. And the deep embeddedness of those ideas then are manifested via policies either through policy policymakers discounting the agency of local people who, because of these, the reproduction of these tropes are seen as unreliable, or by direct efforts to mould the region in the image of the West. And a final example of this translation of intellectual racism into policy can be seen through what we can call uh, a methodology of erasure or a methodology of hypocrisy. That's often learnt from um, academics themselves, right? So, for example, you have the likes of Immanuel Kant, praised by the European Union for his cosmopolitanism. Often he's cited as somebody who provides a foundation for the ethos of the EU. You have that on the one hand. But the racial foundations of Kant's work in his anthropology is often overlooked. So that dualism that exists in an Enlightenment philosopher's work, someone like Immanuel Kant, in fact gets mirrored in EU policy itself, right? So, for example, they can turn a blind eye to hundreds and thousands of migrant deaths in the Mediterranean, while still claiming to champion freedom and human rights. So that dualism that exists in academia and intellectual thought provides a methodology for how that can be reproduced in in policy.
1: Just as a quick follow-up, Jenna, to your point about defining concepts, I wanted to ask, and apologies if this is a very basic question, but... How should we differentiate between racism, imperialism and colonialism when we're talking about their interactions with foreign policy and international affairs? What distinguishes these terms? Because they're obviously not interchangeable. And when should they be used?
2: I have seen and I have experienced where people tend to use interchangeably um, imperialism and, and colonialism. But I also just want to backtrack a bit to say that the discipline of IR There is extensive work that has been done on imperialism in IR. We're not saying that this work hasn't been done, but what is typical is that the work on imperialism tends to be in narrow geopolitical terms. There's a lot of scholarship on formal empire or informal empire through military interventions. So what recent scholarship on imperialism has done, which is quite interesting is the idea of imperialism has now a broader remit to think then of not only formal empire, but the afterlives of empire and the way in which certain practices reinforce global hierarchies. So here I think of the work of Adam Getachew and her monograph world-making after empire. And in her work, she specifically looks at what she's termed differentiated system of sovereign states. And what's quite interesting in that work is that the mainstream understanding of decolonization was the expansion of the state system, one that gave it even greater legitimacy after the end of formal empire. But in her work, what she argues is that actually the inclusion of former colonies into the state system actually sought to reproduce much of the logics that we found under formal empire, rather than a dismantling of much of these logics. So it's really important to see how even The term imperialism and how we study it has changed over time.
3: To add to the great points that Jenna just made, with colonialism, often it can be associated primarily with colonisation. So because we've had the formal event of legal decolonization in many parts of the world, often taking place in the 50s and the 60s, sometimes there's an assumption that colonialism has therefore ended and is something which is a feature of the past and therefore not relevant to contemporary discourse. But we can make a distinction right, between colonisation as a historical events, as formal legal labels, whereas colonialism is reflective of an ideology um, that can still pervade the political structure, interactions between former colonies and, and the metropoles, long after decolonization has taken place. And so that often is referred to as neo-colonialism, but that distinction sometimes collapses in a lot of critical discourse. In terms of the overlapping between race or racism and both imperialism and colonialism, um, sometimes racism is used primarily in a domestic context, uh, whereas imperialism and colonialism will be seen as more related to the global context. But it's really important to remember that imperialism as an ideology and as a system, similarly with colonialism, are built on racial hierarchies, are entirely dependent on the construction of racial hierarchies. So you can't separate those two. And similarly, imperialist ideologies uh, are hugely important in informing the way in which racialized, minoritized communities within these metropoles, let's take the UK as an example, the history of imperialism and how people were treated over there in what was considered distant lands. And then when we have communities, immigrant communities or racialized communities here in the UK, those patterns of interactions historically that existed within the empire reproduced domestically. So there's a lot of fluidity between racism and the discourse about racism and how we understand imperialism and colonialism.
1: Now, I know we're primarily talking about knowledge channels between academia and policy spheres. But I wanted to ask you both about the transfer or sharing of knowledge with or in the public sphere. So for decades, centuries even now, and of course, we've seen huge movements in the past few years too. And Jenna, you alluded to this at the start as well. There's been no shortage of debate and discourse and conversation in the public sphere. And I guess I'm including media and journalism and advocacy in that about the way race impacts policy implementation at a local level or the imperial legacy of the way states conduct their affairs abroad or even the way academia favours a certain type of person. Could you perhaps speak to how this third public layer, if at all, impacts this knowledge production dynamic that you both write about in your article? I think that the
2: contribution of Sarjan Votichit's paper is quite instructive So in the special issue, his paper, Elite Mass Agreement in British Foreign Policy, he draws particularly on the work of Stuart Hall to argue that the public or the masses, as he puts it, are actually equally invested in and sources of UK foreign policy. So the knowledge exchanges between elites within the academy and policy circles still remain. But what is interesting is the way in which these knowledge exchanges take place within a broader social and cultural register such that the intellectual institutions that we see in terms of the universities, the think tanks, along with cultural and educational institutions set the basis for what is then later deemed up as common sense, and it is the production of this common sense which provides a certain degree of buy-in from the public in terms of how foreign policy is shaped, how threats are defined, how certain interactions with particular nation-states are deemed legitimate.
3: A key point that we want to convey with this special issue is that theorizing doesn't always come from within the university. And practice is not always reflected through official policy channels. So you really want to expand who we understand as experts and what type of politics constitutes good foundations for theory, right? So often, for example, when we think about the right to protest or negotiations for freedoms, calls for democratic or civil rights, we automatically look to intellectual work Particularly political theory, and especially we might look to the European Enlightenment, for examples. But so often these concepts and norms grew out of, still grow out from grassroots movements, especially from those marginalized or from racialized communities who had to, in fact, do the most to challenge institutions of power. And so we can see that from whether it's the abolition movement to labour rights movements, while that grassroots agency uh, might get erased in our histories and theorising of those concepts, they're in fact hugely instructive for these really quite fundamental social political concepts. So that's where the academy can act as an important site of exchange. Um, Historically and today, we do have intellectuals who are also engaged in activist or grassroots community work, now those ideas from the bottom up don't always have to be conveyed to official policymakers to make a difference. Practice and praxis can be in other forms um, and it can be disseminated in more organic forms either through educational institutions or even just through that community work through the bottom up. It's also what we understand as Um, sites of of knowledge exchange, um, sometimes we can be quite limited in considering what can make a difference. And the special issue is, is seeking to challenge that.
1: In your introductory article in this new issue, you talk about three dynamics. The first is academia being a supplier of knowledge for colonial policies. The second is influence of imperial practice and policymakers in shaping knowledge production. And the third is challenges to the status quo in academia. Picking up on your third dynamic that you mentioned, how can the challenges to the status quo that we are increasingly seeing in academia or that we have seen in academia, how can that be translated to the policy sphere? How do we push for a system of relations politically, economically, and in knowledge production that a system that is underpinned by principles such as equity and justice and anti-racism? How do we get there?
2: I think the questions of
1: justice and equity
2: also requires one to think about a recognition and legitimacy of other ways of thinking and other ways of knowing the world and in particular the contribution of Kwesi Angin and Kwaku Danzo in the special issue they speak of a concept of episteme of alternativity and much of what has been explored within the special issue has been about this necessity to render visible and intelligible that which colonial ways of knowing and colonial productions of knowledge have rendered invisible and unintelligible. And the practicality of such an endeavor is to challenge the dominant accounts of world politics that marginalized communities and you know this also speaks to what Jasmine talked about with the grassroots movement and it's a way of centering the accounts of those who are typically unheard so this idea of the episteme of alternativity speaks to the generation of knowledges outside of the dominant spheres of power and to give legitimacy to these forms of knowledges, to give credibility to these forms of knowledges. And for their work in particular, Anging and Danzo, they, they speak to orality, to, to oral traditions as credible sources of knowledge production. When thinking about security concepts within, within the African context, the challenging the status quo is for practitioners as well
3: as academics, and we're really clear with that. It's not just directed towards policymakers, so expanding even what we consider as knowledge, what's given credibility, there's an assumption that something has to be published in an academic journal by a prestigious press for it to be taken seriously, and we're not discounting that. Of course, that kind of knowledge production is incredibly important as well, but increasingly, especially as you have... Uh, people who are finding themselves shut out from academic institutions. They're not uh, getting their voices heard in policy channels. They are turning to more creative forms to get their voices heard. There's a fantastic bank of knowledge that's being shared and disseminated, for example, on online blogs or in podcasts. Um, there are sort of community gatherings where this knowledge is generated and so this also exists as forms of knowledge. Getting into the practice of feeling comfortable in citing this knowledge, I think is really important for academics to acknowledge. But also when we're thinking about both academics, especially when it comes to policymakers, while there is an imperative to bring into the conversation voices that typically are not heard or are marginalized, those that are already in positions of power. We would say that the special issue is is calling on, on all of them to show leadership and to show courage. Because having power is not always a bad thing. Right? Being in a position of power can often mean that you're in a position to enact positive, just, emancipatory change. So those who are in those positions, having the courage, sometimes it might be courage to go against the grain, to enact those policies, to initiate that change, is just as important as those voices from the bottom up or those who are typically marginalised
1: to be heard. Jenna and Jasmine, this has been such a lovely conversation and I've definitely learned so much. Thank you both so much for joining me today um, and also thank you both so much for putting together such a wonderful special issue.
2: Thank you so much for having us.
1: Thank you,
3: Amrit. Thanks for having us.
4: Hello, everybody. It's Ben Horton here, one of the co-hosts of Undercurrents. I'm just interrupting this episode to bring you a short conversation with Andrew Dorman, the editor of International Affairs, the journal which has produced all the work that this episode is all about. And we've got Andrew on just because it's a pretty exciting year for International Affairs. It's actually the journal's centenary. The first issue of the journal was published in January 1922. And 100 years later, we're still here. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today. It must feel pretty special to be at the helm in such a significant
5: moment. It is. It's a real honour. Speaking for for the team, we are really excited about this year. It's not often a journal reaches 100 years. There are very few that are older than ours. And uh, it's a real honour to be able to explore this year and take the journal forward into its second century.
4: And you've written a really interesting editorial in the first issue of this year, which everybody can check out. We will share the link to that in the show notes for this episode. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about what you are setting up in that editorial and, and particularly that kind of future looking, what the development plans are for the journal?
5: Certainly. We ran a competition for two special editions this year uh, as part of our centenary and our editorial board chose them. And the first one we're really delighted is looking at race and imperialism and how they have are part of the issues we're discussing within the field of international relations, both at the policy level and also at the academic level. And we're really encouraged and excited about this edition because the journal's had a really interesting history. It's got some really fascinating pieces in, some really Great people have written for it, some of you infamous people have written for it over the years. And um, we're reflecting on a lot of the journal's journey that actually it's broadened in terms of its those who speak and, and have written for it over the years. And to reflect on where it's come from and some of our earliest assumptions. And one of the things we see with this special edition, it really identifies, is how much of both the journals but also the wider disciplines of international relations is being fixed by its early proponents and those who wait for in early times.
4: Ultimately centenaries are celebrations so what can we look forward to just finally this year what's the IA team doing to mark this 100th birthday?
5: We're going to be doing a number of things As I said we've got this special edition which we're really excited about we've got another one that comes out in September that it is been entitled uh, How Not To series which is it's interesting to reflect we so much reflect so much on how things should be done but this is how how not to do things so there's a real exciting edition coming out there we're also doing going tapping back into our archive we've got a whole series of pieces uh, so we've got six archival editions coming out virtually or which the first one was edited by yourself looking at the archive because actually our archive tells its own story about both the journal but also about the discipline itself so the old one looked at British foreign policy. The next one will be looking at war and conflict. That's the tale of war and conflict. And that will be out in, in April. We're very much looking forward to that one. We're also doing a whole series of interviews. The first one came out with a January edition. So it goes back to, to the journal's roots of... The very first pieces were such reprise pieces that had been delivered in the House so that those who could not attend the meetings could find out what was said. So our first was interview with Helen Clark, the former New Zealand Prime Minister and had significant roles subsequently with the United Nations and so forth. And that was really exciting and we hope to have a whole series of other conversations that follow on from that with other leading figures within the international relations. We'll also be hopefully going to a whole series of academic conferences and the London Conference for Chatham House so people will hopefully see us in person not just remotely so it's exciting times and anything else we can think of we will be pushing
4: fantastic and hopefully we can share some of these other activities and get into some of these interesting conversations later in the year on undercurrents as well andrew Dorman, thanks so much for joining me thank you very much and now back to our episode
0: Okay, so now I'm joined by Catherine Antweiler, who is a contributor in the latest issue of International Affairs, this special edition that came out in early January 2022. And her article is titled The Coloniality of Holocaust Memorization in Post-Apartheid South Africa. Before I I introduce the article a bit more, uh, hi Katrin, uh, thank you so much for being here today. How are you?
6: Hi, thank you for having me. I'm well, thanks.
0: So your article, as I was mentioning, looks at these issues of the global uh, and local dynamics of teaching history and, and specifically how certain approaches to teaching Holocaust or Holocaust memorialization, as you describe it, can displace or risk displacing other local histories, such as the apartheid in the case of South Africa. I think congratulations are in order for such a a thought-provoking and interesting article and I thought maybe we could start with telling us a bit of background from your research, but also where did the idea for this article come from and what do you set out to answer with this article?
6: That's a very good question that is still very important to me and what I'm doing or what I've done for this article. The case study that I'm looking at in or for the article is from my larger research project for my PhD, um, which looks at globalized Holocaust memory practices or practices of memorialization more generally. And... I wasn't actually planning on studying the specific South African case but I was at a an educators trip to South Africa in 2017 where we wanted to learn about how how South Africa deals with apartheid history and we were a group of Germans and as critical Germans I guess wherever we go to we go to see Holocaust museums (laughs) so we went to the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center um, which when we were there um, was not yet open the way it is now it was um, kind of in a contemporary setup and we had a a chat with the uh, the founder of the museum Tali Nates and she was very welcoming and open to all our questions and she told us during our conversation, I just kind of came up that in 2007, uh, no, in 2007, excuse me, South Africa included the Holocaust into the national school curricula, and that the reason why it had been included was the idea that learning about the Holocaust would emphasize a human rights framework that South African schools wanted to implement. So that reasoning was the first thing that got me interested Um, and then just a couple of days later I had a conversation with an old friend of mine, a South African, and I told him that we'd been to this um, Holocaust museum and that I thought that it was really good and that it had such an interesting approach and I was really like talking very positively about the site and then at some point he just looked at me and was like, so but why would I as a South African have to learn about the Holocaust? And that was like the other, or the next moment where I was like, hmm, okay, yeah, uh, that's actually an interesting question I had never asked myself, because as I just said, as a German who came to the conclusion that, or had come to the conclusion that Holocaust education and memory, if people wanted to engage with it, does, does always matter. Um, I had never wondered whether for some people it might just not be interesting, and that's all right as well. So it was basically these two conversations that led me to look more closely at how the Holocaust is being memorialized in South Africa and South African settings, but also, and that's actually even more interesting to me, the reasons for why South Africans uh, turn to Holocaust history.
0: That is really interesting. Now, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a bit more about your work on memory politics and how it intersects with this decolonial perspective that you opted for in the specific case study. Why was the decolonial framework particularly well-suited for the article they were talking about?
6: I mean, I did try to um, go for a decolonial perspective for my PhD in general, um, but of course, specifically for this article, since I was looking at a society deeply structured by, well, colonialism, apartheid, neocolonial, neo-apartheid structures, but also... Um, Maybe even more importantly, especially in regards to my my larger project, what I try to understand or bring to the fore is how via narratives about the past, uh, so forms of memorialization, ...certain norms, certain sets of values are being disseminated, being transmitted into places all over the world... ...and that whichever the place, the norms seem to still be the same. So kind of this standardized set, I guess, really called for a decolonial perspective.
0: In your article, you have a multi-pronged argument... ...and one of the sections looks at how we should understand or we could begin to understand time differently... So I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about the limitations to this conception of time as linear and why is it problematic to understand the past as being behind us?
6: In the trend of globalized memory politics that I've been looking at, I often found, as you just said, this notion of time being a linear, progressive kind of flow. And in the specific setting I think what it tends to do or what it risks to do is relegate mass atrocities and injustices to the past and therefore kind of indicating or giving us the sense that we have already reached a better place and on the one hand specifically with human rights where where you can really see how the Holocaust is kind of being put as the point of departure into a greater respect for human rights. This, on the one hand, adds almost like an historical weight to human rights causes um, that are being presented as the the answer to Holocaust history. I'm not sure if it's possible to reconcile them in that sense um, because I think what I find so so compelling, if, if you play around with this idea of thinking time differently, different to this straight linear line of progress then we would always like we would have to continuously ask ourselves about the repercussions of the past in the present and not assume that okay there's this closed chapter that we leave behind us so already in this idea of learning lessons from the past i think is inherent this idea that yeah as i said it's like a closed chapter In the German case that I grew up in, that I know best, there are so many repercussions of Nazi history, not only specifically Holocaust history, on various structures of society. And, of course, the same goes even more extreme form for South Africa with neo apartheid structures. Um, So, yeah, I think that is also a concern that we, we would need to take into consideration.
0: And speaking of concerns to take into consideration, what are some of the stories that get left out with such a linear understanding of time?
6: Well, for example, it risks leaving out the perspectives of those who don't want to forgive. Because I think one effect of, um, or maybe a a prerequisite of these lessons from which we learn is, um, and the the closing the chapter kind of, um, so to say, is that... Those who were, for example, victims of those atrocities we speak about in the past, do not continue to suffer to harbor resentment towards the per- the perpetrators of the past. So it's kind of a an entire position that does not really for, for which there is not really space within this discourse.
0: I noticed that we've been talking about this general we without really clarifying whom it refers to. What are the key Actors that your article focuses on, and what role do they play in shaping Holocaust memorialization?
6: My my analytical perspective is more coming from a Foucauldian angle, um, informed by by governmentality, which does not specifically look at the governments, like the elected governments and politicians, but more of various as Foucault calls it governmental techniques. So, in my in my research and for this article, I did not look at South African politicians, like state elected politicians, but I looked more closely at um, NGOs and what we would call memory activists, and that could be teachers in local communities, for example, or people who would open a a museum. I think key to to this technique is positing or almost prescribing clear-cut answers to Holocaust history. So it's not really the memory or not at all the memory of the Holocaust, but it's more the lessons we're supposed to learn from it. Because I think from Holocaust memory, we can take many different lessons um, as there are so many micro histories within that. But I think the moment where, at least from my analytical point of view, it becomes a governmental technique, is where it leads us into this one specific way of engaging in society, where it leaves us with the idea that the only acceptable response to this history is human rights advocacy, is the engaging in fostering liberal democratic values and so on, which obviously also always leaves out other imaginaries for political orders for example.
0: Now thinking about the specific case study in the article in the case of South Africa can the focus on Holocaust memorialization and the global human rights agenda displace local debates uh, on post-apartheid structural inequalities or what some experts call uh, the economic neo-apartheid? Well
6: first of all I don't think, or actually I don't know, or I wouldn't say that Holocaust memory or Holocaust education takes a front space in general in South Africa. I mean, there is lots of, from museums, apartheid museums, to, of course, um, apartheid features in the school curriculum, obviously. But here, once again, I think what I was concerned with more is how Holocaust history is the content or the history turn to if the aim was actually democracy education. So put differently in settings where it's actually about educating, about democracy, the rule of law, democratic values, human rights, then Holocaust history becomes very present because it's in a sense easier to look at and to take these clear-cut lessons that I mentioned before if turned to, well, on the one hand, a history that had happened much longer ago than apartheid and it's also far removed from south africa or from south african society of course not for everyone who lives in south africa um since there's a large jewish community also of people who had fled from europe I think that's more the situation. And here again, or this maybe relates to the to the beginning of your question, because the way I, I mean I try to kind of trace this knowledge, right? That that's been disseminated through Holocaust memorialization. And Here again we come to the lessons that are being taken from history because I don't think there is a big problem with having standardized content about the Holocaust, which for example the Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, which I spoke about in the article, really aims for. But I think the problem starts where there is a standardized set of responses to this history and to a standardized set of Imaginaries of a world, a, a better world, which many of the advocates for Holocaust memory in South Africa aim for. They aim for a more just society. But I think if you stick to these norms and values that come from a very specific epistemic location um, and that are derived from, from Western liberal discourse, then it's very difficult to ever go beyond or ever actually abolish, for example, as you said, um, neo apartheid structures.
0: If I could play a devil's advocate for a second here, why is it important to go beyond the Western liberal discourse when these have worked elsewhere?
6: But I mean, have they? I mean, I'm thinking about something that does not have anything to do with a specific South African case, but that comes to my mind whenever whenever like a similar question is being asked. I'm just thinking, for example, about uh, refugees trying to enter the European Union, dying in the Mediterranean, the criminalization of activists trying to to rescue refugees on uh, at sea. And all of this happening within the European Union or within around the borders of the European Union that claims to be the safe haven uh, the of, of where where human rights are not only um, respected, but that also goes elsewhere to, to bring human rights. So I think in a sense, this... Western liberal democratic discourse puts forward equality, freedom while it actually is rooted in very I mean in massive violence um, and um, and racism so that doesn't really end up
0: What are some of the risks of continuing down the road of one size fits all with more and more standardized human rights global agenda?
6: I mean, it's not only the standardized lessons that are taken from Holocaust history or Holocaust memory, but I, at least for, for me, the way I see it, there is a already a lack of political imaginary beyond human rights. So as if human rights is already, like, it's the last utopia and since... Ever since we we kind of were unable to to imagine anything else and I think that might sound like oh, it's not a bad thing but it's it's huge
0: and finally, what needs to change in order to transform the global human rights agenda or to allow for an alternative to develop
6: to me, because I started this interview with saying that, you know, as a critical or self-proclaimed critical German, um, I always consider um, Holocaust history to be very important and teachings about the Holocaust very relevant. And I still do. Um, This has not changed at all. I think, actually, because I think that this very complicated history, if we even want to call it history, um, in this kind of thinking about it as a close entity sense, definitely has the ability to to contribute to creating a more just world but maybe what it would need to entail would be I think we would need to ask t- we should take more questions from it than answers questions that would lead us to reconsider many of the or that might lead us to reconsider to many of the the pillars we take for granted of well I guess the western democratic order I don't want to 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 give this answer suggesting that there is this one other way of doing it better, um, but more to say that if we would practice Holocaust memorialization more in a sense of democracy yet to come, you know, in an order um, and uh, and ideas um, and worlds that are not there yet and that because the ones we, we live in are still insufficient, I think then it might... I don't know, you said change to the better, um, but at least contribute to what many people, I think, really truly aim for when when practicing Holocaust memory, but that maybe get lost on the way once we we turn to the, to the lessons for humanity, as it's often put.
0: Absolutely. And just there, when you highlighted that my words were changed for the better, just made me think about the linearity of time and how it's so ingrained in this process of self-reflection that we're... Sh- we must be doing it and instrumentalizing it towards achieving a better goal and uh, it would be very tricky to I, I just felt like it was very tricky for me for a second there to to step out of of that paradigm so thank you so much for highlighting a a, a more hopeful note uh even even if it's not exactly playing the the rules of of, of the game you're trying to to problematize with with the article so it's it's been a pleasure, Katrin. Uh, thank you so much. It's it's given me a lot of food for thought and I hope you'll do the same uh, for our listeners who I can only encourage to pick up the article. We'll link it in the show notes uh, if anyone is interested. Uh, otherwise, that's it for me. Thank you once again, Katrin. Thank
6: you so much for having me. Thank you.
1: Those were two very good interviews. I definitely enjoyed them and learned a lot as well. You can also learn more, if you'd like, by reading the new special issue of International Affairs, which we have linked in the show notes. The new special issue is all open access, so you can read them for free and download them for free as well. So please do do that because it's a really great issue Um, and there are some really important subjects in them. It's very broad-ranging. There are articles on the African nuclear weapon-free zone, Counterterrorism practitioners, British foreign policy making, and just race and racism and international relations more broadly, which is a concurrent theme throughout all of the wonderful articles in this issue. Not
0: to mention, it has a fantastic book review section. If you enjoyed the the, the interviews that we put together for this episode, but also the, our previous content, and if you're looking forward to more interviews in the future. Please subscribe to the podcast. Uh, Feel free to leave us a review and a five-star rating if we got there. We'll be very grateful and also helps other people who are interested in international affairs to come across our content. So I think that's it from us.
1: Unless I'm ready, have any last words? No further words from me, except thank you for listening and we'll be back soon.